Welcome to Thrive Community Podcast. We are a church community that is passionate about helping you thrive in your life with Jesus. If you're after more information about Thrive Community, hop onto our website at www.thrivecommunity.au. We hope you feel encouraged and inspired by this message. In Leviticus 23, and I think I pointed this out last week, there's a number of references in there to the feasts being the appointed times of the Lord. And and in other words, one of the translations of that is that these are the times that God has appointed to meet with humanity. There's something significant about these times of the year and growing in our understanding of them helps us to enter into that space and enter into what God is doing. And so I'm just going to open up in prayer, then we'll jump into the Feast of Weeks and, and spend the rest of our time on the three final feasts. So King Jesus, we welcome you here tonight. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that ultimately it's the same God who has ruled over all the earth and all the universe from the very, very beginning. And we get to enter into your story at this time. And we're thankful that we get to be included in the beautiful story that you're writing throughout humanity, throughout the generations, and play our part for such a time as this. And so, Lord, we just invite Holy Spirit to come and minister to us, speak to our hearts. Lord, we open ourselves up and we ask for fresh hunger, fresh insight, fresh revelation, just a, a fresh desire and passion to know you, to know your word, and to grow in relationship with you, ultimately for your glory, to be transformed into the image of Christ. That's our heart's desire, to be everything that you've called us to be and to embrace all that you've made available for us. Have your way amongst us tonight, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. All right, so we're going to jump straight into the Feast of Weeks, which is the the last of the spring feasts. And I'm going to read from Leviticus 23 and verses 15 to 17. So this is the passage right off the back of Leviticus 23, talking about the Feast of Passover, Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of, of first fruits. Leviticus 23, 15 to 17, speaks about the Feast of Weeks. And it says, you shall count from the day after the Sabbath. Remember, last week we talked about how the Feast of first fruits was the day after the first Sabbath after Passover. It was the first Sunday after Passover. And this is saying that from that day, from the day of the Feast of first fruits, you shall count from that day, um, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths, seven full weeks. And that's why it's called the Feast of Weeks, because its time is based around seven weeks. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring in from your places two loaves of bread as a wave offering made from two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And so this is something that gets celebrated 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. And you count the 50 days based on seven full weeks. I'm not sure what your times tables are like. We're doing times tables with our kids at the moment, but seven times seven is 49, and that's where you get your your 50 the day after the seventh Sabbath. And this is where the word Pentecost comes from as well. 
It's either the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, because Pentecost is simply the Greek word for 50th, representing the 50-day period that's counted out. And I find it interesting, you know, Pentecost itself is not a a Christian word. It's not a, a Christian celebration or a Christian holiday. It's something that had been celebrated for 1,500 years before Acts happened. And perhaps this is, as I was reflecting on it today, you know, a bit of an example of, of sometimes how parts of the church have, have lost the Jewish roots of their faith. You know, in, in large parts of the church, you probably think about Pentecost solely through the, the Acts chapter 2 lens. But actually, Pentecost is just another word to describe the Jewish Feast of Weeks that had been going on for, for 1,500 years before Acts happened. And as with all of the feasts, the, the Feast of Weeks has an agricultural component. We talked last week about, you know, the the, the Feast of First Fruits um, being the, the barley harvest. There's an agricultural part to the Feast of Weeks as well. And this is bringing the first fruits of the wheat harvest before the Lord. And Exodus 34, 22 tells us this. It says, you shall observe the Feast of Weeks of the first fruits of wheat harvest. And so first fruits is the barley harvest and the feast of weeks is the wheat harvest. And, and secondly, from a spiritual perspective, this feast is, is the time when the Jews celebrate the giving of the law, the giving of the Torah to Moses on, on Mount Sinai. And again, last week, we spent quite a bit of time talking through the, the journey of the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and, and how Passover you know, is, is such a big part of that story. And here we come back to that account of the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. The Israelites had left Egypt. Pharaoh's armies tried to pursue them for a number of days. And then God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites cross over on dry land. The waters rush back and, and wash the Egyptian army away. And then Moses leads the Israelites into the wilderness. And, and they spend a number of weeks journeying through different parts of that area of the world before coming to Mount Sinai. And in, in Exodus 19, you can read it. I won't read through all of it for the sake of time tonight, but it tells us in Exodus 19 verse 1 that the children of Israel came into the wilderness of Sinai in the third month. And if you remember Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of first fruits all happened in the first month according to the, the Jewish calendar. So it's, it's been around 45 days since the Israelites had left Egypt, 45 days of, you know, leaving Egypt, going through the Red Sea on dry land, and then wandering around in the wilderness. And, and as you continue to read through Exodus 19, Moses goes up and down Mount Sinai a couple of times with words from God for the people. And one of those words is that the people need to purify themselves and get ready because God was going to come down on Mount Sinai and meet with Moses there. And I'm going to read two verses from, from Exodus 19. And this is the picture of, of God coming and descending on, on Mount Sinai. Exodus 19 verses 18 to 20. And it says, Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And so this is the time. You know, God descends on Mount Sinai in fire. Moses goes up the mountain, and this is where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. 
This is where the law of Moses or the Torah is given to Moses. This, you know, the picture that you've got in all of the kids' Bibles or different things that you might have watched of Moses holding those two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them. I think I've told this joke before, but perhaps my one dad joke for the night is, you know, this was the Moses was the first person to download something from the cloud onto a tablet. We do that all the time now, but Moses was the first one to do that all those all those years ago. I promise you, I think that's probably the only dad joke for, for tonight. But but rabbinic tradition um, tells us that when this happened, the time that Moses went up on Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments from God, it was on the sixth of the third month, the sixth of the month of, of Sivan, which is exactly seven weeks or 50 days from that Feast of First Fruits, the first Passover, the first Sabbath after Passover. And, and that in itself is significant that from the very first Feast of First Fruits, you count 50 days, and that's exactly the time that Moses received the Ten Commandments. And then if we fast forward 1,500 years later, on exactly that same day when Moses received the Ten Commandments, we read in Acts 2, verses 1 to 4, that when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared on them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so we can begin to see the fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks just in in this picture here, that the very first Pentecost with Moses, the very first Feast of Weeks, God descended on Mount Sinai in fire and he wrote his law on stone tablets. But then 1,500 years later at Pentecost in AD 33, God descended in Jerusalem, which is known as Mount Zion, and he descended in the form of tongues of fire rather than a cloud of fire. And he wrote his law on the hearts of humanity by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You know, Acts 2, that new covenant Pentecost was the fulfillment of the the new covenant promise that was given in Jeremiah 31. It says, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. At the very first Pentecost was the law being written on tablets of stone. But 1,500 years later, on the day of Pentecost, the law was written on our hearts by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you can begin to see how Pentecost in Acts was the sort of fulfillment of the spiritual element of the Feast of Weeks. There is the fulfillment of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai to the writing of the law on our hearts by the Holy Spirit in Mount Zion 1,500 years later. And rounding that out with the agricultural element of the Feast of Weeks. Remember that this was about bringing the first fruits of the wheat harvest before the Lord. And and what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? Peter gets up and he preaches a message, spirit-led message, and 3,000 people get saved, born again, and filled with the Spirit. And that in itself is the first fruits of the harvest of new covenant believers. 3,000 people were saved on the day that the Jews were bringing the first fruits of their wheat harvest, the first fruits of those that were saved by the grace of God happened on exactly the same day. And that connection between the wheat harvest and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is 
prophesied by John the Baptist in, in Matthew chapter 3. I find it amazing how Scripture just continues to confirm itself. Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 to 12, this is John the Baptist, and he says, As for me, I baptize you with water because of your repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to remove. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear out his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat, the believers, into his barn, the kingdom." but he will burn up the chaff, the unrepentant, with unquenchable fire. And so you can see here that believers are the wheat of the harvest. And so the 3,000 people that were saved at the Pentecost that's described in Acts chapter 2 were the first fruits of the wheat harvest of the kingdom of God, souls that were saved. And so what happened there in Acts chapter 2 was a perfect fulfillment of the agricultural side of the Feast of Weeks, but also the spiritual side of the Feast of Weeks in that the law was written on our hearts when the Holy Spirit came and dwelt in us. And so that in itself is a beautiful picture and a beautiful way of rounding out the spring feasts and the way that each of them were fulfilled as part of Jesus' first coming. All right, Passover was fulfilled through Jesus' crucifixion. Unleavened bread was fulfilled through Jesus' burial. The Feast of First Fruits was fulfilled through Jesus' resurrection. And the Feast of Weeks was fulfilled at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, all on exactly the same day, perfectly fulfilling the detail of the law of Moses. Just so amazing and astounding, just the perfection and the detail through which Scripture fulfills itself. And what I want to do now is move past the spring feasts into the next group of feasts that are known as the fall feasts. And these are the feasts where the, the final fulfillment of them is still to come. They will be accomplished when Jesus returns, when he comes back in his second coming. And one of the, the things to keep in mind as we go through this is a deeper understanding of these three feasts actually helps us get a deeper understanding of the end times and the sequence of events and how things are going to play out. And so I pray that as we go through this, perhaps there might be some things around, you know, what's going to happen as we get closer and closer to Jesus' return that might help you put some of that together as well. And so there's three feasts we're going to look at. They are the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, which actually is a fast rather than a feast, and, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And I'm going to do something similar to what I did last week. I'm just going to read through the passages from Leviticus 23 that speak to all three of these. We'll set out a bit of a timeline, and then we'll go into the detail of how each of these will be fulfilled when Jesus comes back. So Leviticus 23, starting from verse 23, I'm going to read verse 23 to 28, and then also verses 33 to 34. I'm reading from the New King James, and it says, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the children of Israel, saying in the seventh month. So remember, we had Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits in the first month. The Feast of Weeks happened in the third month. And now here we are in the seventh month. And it says in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day 
of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. So we've got three feasts, three events, all happening within the space of 15 days. The first day of the seventh month is the Feast of Trumpets. And based on 2023 in our calendar, that begins at sundown tomorrow. You might remember that the Jewish day is from sundown to sundown. So at sundown tomorrow is the first day of the seventh month, which is the, the Feast of Trumpets. Then 10 days later, on the 10th of the seventh month, according to the Hebrew calendar, is the Day of Atonement. And that is sundown on Sunday, the 24th of September, through to sundown on Monday, the 25th of September. And then lastly, the Feast of Tabernacles on the 15th day of the seventh month, which for us begins at sundown on Friday, the 29th of September, and goes for a week after that. And, and this seventh month, according to the Hebrew calendar, is the most holy month of the whole year. And that period of you know, intense holiness and, and time with the Lord begins at sundown tomorrow. This is the most significant month of the year for Jews and according to the Hebrew calendar. And perhaps you're wondering what, why, why this, this month? What is so special about this month and this time of year? Well, well just like all of the other feasts, there's a, there's a large agricultural kind of farming component to this because Back when God instituted these feasts, the success or failure of crops each year ultimately determined the success or the failure of, of the whole society. Whether they had a successful harvest or not impacted almost every other area of society because it determined whether they had enough food to eat. And so understanding the agricultural cycle is, is really important to understanding the significant events throughout the Jewish calendar. And, and I'm as I go through this, I'm not talking about the agricultural cycle from, from firsthand experience. I'm certainly not a farmer. I think I've got stitches on one of my arms from playing on a stationary tractor when I was a kid at a playground. It wasn't even moving and I fell off. So this, this is not because I understand farming at all. This is simply based on history and doing a bit of research. And, and it tells us that in Israel, it was September and October, where they were preparing to begin sowing seed and, and planting next year's crop. And then they would plant the seeds during November, December. And it was around that time when the winter rains or the former rains would fall. You might be familiar with a number of passages in scripture that talk about the former rains and the latter rains. So the winter or the former rains happened that kind of December, January period. And then the latter rains came in February or March. And then harvest time was April or May. And that's why you've got your feast of first fruits and feast of weeks with the first fruits of the barley and the wheat harvest around April and May. So that's kind of your agricultural cycle. And, and September and October was when they were preparing to begin sowing their seed. So this time of year was when Israel went into a time of repenting and making themselves right before the Lord because they wanted to come before God. They depended on him to provide the winter rain for the crops. And they wanted to make sure that they were giving themselves the best chance to have God bless them and pour out the winter 
reigns. It was a time for them to cleanse their hearts and come back to God in a fresh way, believing that he would bless them with a great winter rain and a great crop. Because if the rain didn't come in winter, then there would be no harvest later on in the year. And I'm not sure about you, but I really, particularly this year, I'm sensing that we're in a very similar season spiritually at the moment. There's this time of of returning and repenting or things coming up for people, things being exposed, God wanting to to deal with stuff, God wanting us to let go of things, God wanting us to, to lean back into Him and depend on Him afresh, trust Him again, and believe for Him to do what only He can do. And and the reason this is that time of year of things coming up and repenting and returning, I believe is because just like all those years ago, naturally, God wanted to pour the rain out. He also wants to pour out the rain of heaven over the seeds that are being sown at the moment. He wants to see a great harvest as we come into this next year. He wants to see the former and the latter rain, spiritually speaking, poured out over us so that we can be people who are flourishing and thriving in our life with Him. And so this is a really significant time to get our hearts right before the Lord and believe that the rain of heaven would be poured out over us in the coming months. And so the Feast of Trumpets is the first feast in that significant time. And this feast is also known as the Feast of Remembrance or the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, which literally means the head of the year. And you might have seen, depending on who you follow on Instagram or what kind of stuff you read, people talking about Rosh Hashanah around this time of year or years past. And perhaps to answer the obvious question, it does seem a little bit strange to be celebrating New Year on the first day of the seventh month. You would have thought perhaps it would be the first month. Um, and, and to answer that question, you see, this wasn't always the Jewish New Year. After the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in in AD 70, there were many things about Judaism that had to be redefined because there was no longer a temple for them to worship at, no longer a temple for them to bring their sacrifices and their offerings. And so much of the law related to and depended on them having a physical temple. And so a bunch of things were redefined. And one of those things was the beginning of the year. Based on Exodus 23, 16, which says that the end of the year was at the time of the fall harvest, which is the season that we're in right now. The the Jewish sages at that time decided that the Feast of Trumpets would also mark the beginning of the new year. And so since that time, the Jews have celebrated this time of year. The Feast of Trumpets has become synonymous with the Jewish new year. But the focus all throughout history whether you call it Rosh Hashanah, whether you call it the Feast of Remembrance, whether you call it the Feast of Trumpets, the focus has always been and still continues to be on the blowing of the trumpet, the blowing of the shofar or the ram's horn. And in traditional Jewish Rosh Hashanah services or you know Feast of Trumpet services in synagogue, the shofar is blown at least 100 times during the service. And there's a few main types of trumpet blasts that I wanted to briefly mention. And, and one of them is, is a long single blast, which is symbolic of the sound of the king's coronation, right? Coronating a king. And you think even in our Western culture, whether it's in England or elsewhere, if there's a, a coronation of, of a king or a queen, there's usually trumpets involved. There's also three short whale-like blasts, and, and that's to signify repentance. 
You know, this, this time, the, the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, these are holy times where we're meant to, you know, reflect on our choices, our decisions, our actions, and repent for anything that isn't right before the Lord. And then there's also nine short staccato or sharp blasts that are meant to be like an alarm to awaken the soul. And, and the meaning behind each of these types of blasts on the ram's horn is significant because you see that the Feast of Trumpets marks the beginning of a 10-day period that's known as the Days of Awe or the High Holy Days. The 10 days between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement are known as the Days of Awe. And they're specifically a time of prayer, of repentance, and awakening from slumber, perhaps awakening from things that aren't right before the Lord and getting ourselves back in that place of hunger and dependence upon Him. And it's exactly this same heart, this same thought that Paul shares in his letter to the church in Ephesus, where in Ephesians 5, 13 to 14, he says, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up sleeper from the dead and Christ will shine on you. This is the time of the year where heaven is crying out, wake up sleeper, arise and get yourself right before the Lord. Come back to me with a fresh hunger and a fresh dependence upon me. That's what this time of year is all about. And, and I want to encourage us, you know, if you feel led or stirred by the Spirit, to take some time from sundown tomorrow and the 10 days after that to devote ourselves to prayer. Spend some time asking the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and repent of anything that comes up. You know, be praying for a fresh awakening that we would come back to God with a fresh surrender and, and dependence upon Him. And that might look like different things at different times, Throughout the years, I've done different things. I might be giving up TV for, for the 10 days or social media or whatever it might be to create some more space for prayer and spending more time with the Lord during those 10 days of awe. Because for the Jews, this is a really significant time. They believe that at the Feast of Trumpets on Rosh Hashanah, the, the books of life and the books of death are opened. And everyone then, because nobody is perfect, there's this 10-day period for us to repent and seal our fate. And at the end of those 10 days, our name is either written in the book of life or it's written in the book of death, depending on how we respond and the choices that we make. And obviously, praise the Lord for us. We know that our salvation doesn't come through, you know, the, the choices and the decisions that we make in a 10-day period. But our our faith and our salvation is in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And because of what he has done for us, hallelujah, we can have confidence that our names are written and sealed in the book of life. Even if we make a mistake, we know that our name is sealed in the book of life because of what Christ has done. And Revelation makes this very clear. Revelation 3, verse 5, He who overcomes the world through believing that Jesus is the Son of God will accordingly be dressed in white clothing, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. That's such good news for us. Uh, uh, you know, there's, that's the, the struggle for so many people living in religion, that they feel like they have to earn their way into the book of life or earn their way into acceptance with God. But for us as believers in Jesus, we can be sure that our name will never be blotted from the book of life because we are covered in the righteousness that Jesus made available for us. But even for us as Christians, this picture of the trumpet blast signifying repentance and awakening the soul and names being written in the book of life 
It prophetically points to the time still to come when Jesus will return at the blast of the very last trumpet. And then all of those with their names written in the book of life will be raised up with him into our eternal resurrection life. And this is what most people would call the rapture, that Jesus returns at the sound of the last trumpet. And those of us whose names are written in the book of life are raised up with him into our eternal life. And two passages that speak clearly about this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 17. And it says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the blast of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will simultaneously be caught up, raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52 speaks of the same thing. Listen very carefully. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep in death, but we will all be completely changed, wondrously transformed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trumpet call. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead who believed in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we will be completely changed, wondrously transformed. There's a day coming where the final blast of the trumpet will be heard, and Jesus is returning, and we get to be raised up with him into our eternal life. And, you know, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time unpacking end times theology. That's not the intention of, of our time together. Perhaps that can be another session that we do another time. But simply what I want to point out is that these two passages from 1 Thessalonians and, and 1 Corinthians speak very clearly of how the Feast of Trumpets will be fully and finally fulfilled when Jesus comes back. And that's the fulfillment of also, you know, what the Jews believe as the Jewish New Year. And, and I don't want to spend too much time tonight talking about what this new Jewish year might mean for us, um, because we're looking at how Jesus will fulfill these Jewish feasts. But I will say that sundown tomorrow marks the beginning of the year 5784, according to the Hebrew calendar. And if you've followed different prophetic voices, you might have seen a number of prophetic words that have been shared about this year being the year of open doors or a year to do with doors. And the reason for that is because the Hebrew letter for the number four, remember we're coming into the year 5784, the Hebrew letter for the number four is Dalet and every Hebrew number has a letter associated with it and there are meanings of each of those letters. And the meaning of the word used or the letter used for number four, one of its main meanings is door. And so for that reason, many people are prophesying and saying that this is a year of open doors and to be expecting doors to open and be pressing into the Lord for what those doors look like in our own lives, in our own spaces. And so for us as, as Thrive Community, if you're part of our local community, We'll be spending some time talking about that on Sunday as we celebrate the Feast of Trumpets together. We'll be talking about what this season of doors and open doors might look like for us personally and for us as, as a community. But the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Remembrance, begins at sundown tomorrow. And ultimately, its final fulfillment will be when the final trumpet sounds at Jesus' return. Whenever that day is, the trumpet will sound 
and we will be raised up with him in eternal life. And it's then, you know, off the back of sundown tomorrow that we go through these 10 days of all the high holy days before we reach the day of atonement. And that's, as I mentioned, the only fast amongst all seven of these, all the rest of the feasts, the day of atonement is a fast. And it's described in Leviticus 23, verses 26 to 28. Leviticus 23, 26 to 28. And it says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, also the 10th day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you and you shall afflict your souls and shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord, your God. And it's this reference in here to afflicting your soul that is interpreted by the Jews as meaning it's a day of prayer and fasting. And they actually fast from a bunch of other things. They, they, they don't bathe. They don't eat food. They also refrain from marital relations. And, and, and there's a bunch of things that they see in that reference, that phrase, afflict your souls. And the reason they see that is that this is a time for us to let go of the things of this world and, and have our souls focused on the holiness of the Lord. So from sundown next Sunday, the 24th of September, to sundown that Monday, the 25th, you know, perhaps you might choose to, to fast as well and spend a day meditating on the holiness of God and reflecting on the atonement that we have in Jesus. You know, this is the holiest day in the whole Jewish calendar. And, and it always has been all the way through because it was this day, this was the only day of the year where the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies in the temple and make atonement for the people of Israel. If you're familiar with some of this, you know, Leviticus 16 sets out what that looked like and how the high priest would make atonement on that one day of the year. Leviticus 16, again, I won't read through it all, but I'll summarize it briefly where the high priest would get a bull as a sin offering, and that sin offering was for the high priest himself and for his household. And then there would also be two goats. One of those goats was a sin offering, and that was the sin offering for the people of Israel. And the two sin offerings, the bull and the goat, they were sacrificed and the blood was then sprinkled on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. And the other goat that was part of this process was known as the scapegoat. And what the high priest would do is lay both of his hands on the head of that goat and confess all of the sins of the Israelites over that goat and thereby transfer the sins into the goat and then send the goat away into the wilderness. And this was done only once a year to atone for the sin of Israel and thereby hopefully avoid the judgment of God for another 12 months. And understanding the connection between Atonement and, and judgment is important because that's ultimately how we begin to see the fulfillment of the day of atonement in Jesus' second coming. You know, we have partial fulfillment of the day of atonement that we're experiencing right now through what Jesus has done for us, right? Our sins have been atoned for through the sacrifice, the ascension of Christ, where he rose from the dead and then ultimately rose into heaven and took his place at the right hand of the Father. And in doing that, his own blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat of heaven 
and our sins have been atoned for. Just like the bull and the goat as the sin offering had their blood sprinkled on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies in the temple, Jesus' blood has been sprinkled on the mercy seat of heaven and cleansed us of our sin, atoned for our sin. So we have partial fulfillment of the day of atonement, but ultimately he as our sin offering and our scapegoat once and for all is someone who's waiting now in heaven for that day still to come when the day of atonement will be fully and finally fulfilled. And Hebrews 9 speaks about this when it talks about ultimately Jesus going into the heavenly temple and then it goes on to talk about the the judgment that is still to come. So Hebrews 9, 24 to 28, I'm going to read through this because you begin to get the picture of just the contrast of the high priest in the temple in the Old Testament, Jesus entering into the holy place of heaven, and then the judgment that is still to come. So from verse 24 of Hebrews 9, for Christ did not enter into a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the very presence of God on our behalf, nor did he enter into the heavenly sanctuary to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer over and over since the foundation of the world. But now once for all at the consummation of the ages, he has appeared and been publicly manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed and destined for all men to die once, and after this comes certain judgment, so Christ, having been offered once and once for all to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time when he returns to earth, not to deal with sin, but to bring salvation to those who are eagerly and confidently waiting for him. And so it tells us that, you know, what Jesus accomplished when he first ascended was to cleanse us of our sin, but he's coming back again and he's going to come and there'll be a time of judgment. And those of us that are waiting for him will find fulfillment of our salvation. And so he's coming back for a final day of judgment. And we know according to to 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, that we all will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But those of us that are waiting for him, that have a relationship with him, will experience the fullness of our salvation at that point in time. And it's fascinating that it's the day of atonement that the Jews believe is the day where, you know, every soul is either written in the book of death or the book of life. This is when our fates are sealed. And Revelation tells us that the exact same thing will happen when Jesus returns, that he will sit on the throne of judgment and write the names of those that are going to be in the book of life or the book of death. Revelation 20 11 to 13. This is getting towards the very, very end of the book, the very, very end of our story. Revelation 20, 11 to 13. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. There's coming a time when Jesus comes back, when just like the Jews have believed for thousands of years, 
The day of atonement will be fulfilled when names are written in the book of life and the book of death at that moment of judgment. And the amazing news for all of us, of course, who have received Jesus as our Lord and Savior is, while of course we'll still need to give an account for our lives and how we've stewarded what God has given to us, we don't need to be afraid of being cast away from his presence because we know that our names have been written and sealed in the book of life through the blood of Jesus. But that is when the day of atonement will find its final and perfect fulfillment. When Jesus comes back and takes his seat on that throne and writes names in the book of life and death for eternity. And then finally, we're almost at the end of our time together tonight. We come to the very last feast, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. And this, amazingly, is the most joyful feast of all. And I love that, that the story and the the narrative all throughout the feasts and the narrative all throughout Scripture is that we finish with a time of great rejoicing. And, and this really is the most joyful feast of all. See, the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement are quite solemn, quite solemn moments, quite significant and heavy times of reflection and repentance and, and dealing with things that are going on in our lives. But the Feast of Tabernacles is a, is a feast. It's a time of, of really great rejoicing. And so Leviticus 23 verses 33 to 34, and then also from verse 39 onwards, tell us what's involved in celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. So I'm just going to read through this and then we'll unpack it for just a few minutes and then we'll finish our time together. And it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. And also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit or the crops of the land, and just a little side note there, sometimes this is known as the Feast of Ingathering because it's the time where the crops or the fruit are gathered in. And continuing on, continuing on, it says, You shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days, and on the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day of the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm leaves, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall dwell in booths for seven days, all who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so I've picked a couple of verses there, but all of that is in between Leviticus 23, 33 and 43. And that gives you a picture of what's involved in celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And in obedience to those last few verses, they're talking about making booths out of leaves and branches and dwelling in them. Jews all around the world build what are called sukkahs or little huts using leaves and wood and branches. And many times, sometimes they sleep in them, but they certainly eat their meals in them for that week of the Feast of Tabernacles. If you're in Israel during this time, the parks and the streets are often filled with little huts that the Jews have made in obedience to this command from Leviticus. And, and just like every other feast, there's a, a spiritual as well as an agricultural fulfillment of this one. And the agricultural side of this is the ingathering of the crops of the land. See, this isn't just the first fruits of the harvest, but this is when all of the crops have been harvested and are gathered in to the barn or gathered in for the people to enjoy. 
And, and the prophetic fulfillment of this ingathering of the crops is the, is the ingathering of the nations. They will all come together in Jerusalem during the millennial reign of Christ. And, and Zechariah 14, I'm not sure whether you've spent much time reading through Zechariah, but it's amazing. Zechariah 14, this prophetic passage that speaks into what's going to happen when Jesus returns, speaking about you know, things that are thousands and thousands and thousands of years ahead of time. And yet Zechariah speaks in great detail about what's going to happen, how nations are going to, to come against Jerusalem, but yet Jesus will reign as king over all the earth. And so Zechariah 14, I'm going to read verse 9, and then I'm also going to read verse 16. And as I said, there's probably a, a discussion for another time around how this might play out and what this looks like. But Zechariah 14, verse 9, and it says, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and in that day it shall be that the Lord is one and his name is one. So that's speaking about the reign of God, the reign of Christ over all the earth. And interestingly, just a few verses before that, it tells us that when Jesus comes back, his feet will be on the Mount of Olives. It tells us where he's going to return and then what's going to happen from there. And if we jump down to Zechariah 14, verse 16, with that kind of framework of Jesus having returned, reigning over the earth, and it says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. See, the Feast of Tabernacles is going to be celebrated year after year as part of the millennial reign of Christ in his second coming. It's going to be celebrated by Jews and Christians from all over the world. The nations will be gathering together in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And again, it just tells me that these feasts are not something outdated that are to be left behind in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, but these still are and will continue to be relevant in the days that we live now and the days that are still to come. You know, there's so much in this around what's going to happen in Israel and Jerusalem, and we begin to see all of that play out through the end times passages and, and prophecy. And a big part of that is the Feast of Tabernacles being honored and celebrated in Jerusalem every year. And there's a, a ministry that I'm a part of called ICEJ, the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem. And as a rehearsal for this, they have what is the largest Christian gathering in Israel at the Feast of Tabernacles every single year. And the nations come to Jerusalem to celebrate it as a rehearsal of what's prophesied in Zechariah 14. But beyond that agricultural ingathering of the fruit, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles also celebrates the time when God gave Moses instructions to build the tabernacle of the Lord, right? If you've read through Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy, some of those books, there's very detailed instructions that God gives Moses on how to build the tabernacle, the types of materials to use, how big certain parts of the tabernacle are to be. It's like detailed Lego instructions, right? With exactly the, the size of the pieces and how they are to fit together. And it's the tabernacle where God's presence would dwell. And, you know, you can begin to see why this is a time of great rejoicing. When you're thinking about, you know, for the Jews, this is remembering that the God of the universe would come and dwell with them. And for us as well, it should be a time of great rejoicing where we're remembering how God has chosen to come and dwell with us. You know, the Jews celebrate and rejoice in the fellowship that they have 
the fellowship that the Israelites had with God through the tabernacle. They celebrate the protection and the care of God during their 40 years in the wilderness. And as Christians, you know, we're able to celebrate and rejoice in the fellowship that we have with God today as well. His constant protection, his care as we journey through, not the physical wilderness that the Israelites journeyed through, but in many ways journeying through the wilderness of our life here on earth, that our God is with us, tabernacling among us. And again, just like the Day of Atonement is partial fulfillment for us today and final fulfillment still to come, it's the same for us with the Feast of Tabernacles, right? Jesus, in his first coming, came and became flesh and tabernacled amongst us in partial fulfillment of this feast. John 1.14, and it says, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Or that word dwelt can also be translated as tabernacled. And some translations use that word. And so because of what Jesus has done, we have access now, not only to, to Jesus dwelling in us, but we have access to the heavenly tabernacle of God as well. And Hebrews 4 talks about how we can approach God's throne of grace or approach God's tabernacle boldly and with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You see, because of the atonement that we have with our great high priest, Jesus, we can boldly enter the tabernacle of God in heaven. But the final piece that will find its final fulfillment comes at the very end of the book of Revelation. The complete fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles will happen when Jesus returns after the final judgment that we talked about with the Day of Atonement. We read the very next verses from Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3, and we read these words. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. See, I find it amazing that the, the final feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, will find its final fulfillment in the final scene of the book of Revelation. In the new heaven and the new earth, God will once and forever fully dwell with us, where the tabernacle of God will be with men. Unhindered by sin, unhindered by Satan, God will be with us and we will be with him forever. 